So we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel 29. It's not only me, but most uh, scholars of the Bible uh, believe that the writer of 1 Samuel is just a master storyteller. Indeed, it's history, but he's arranged the history in such a powerful way to make a wonderful point. In chapters 27 through 31, we see the same thing. Um, It's not exactly in chronological order. What we see in chapter 27 and 28 and 29 don't follow each other exactly, but thematically, it's perfectly done. So in chapter 27, what do we see? We see David fleeing to the Philistines. He's made a mess of the situation, I believe, running to the enemies of God. In chapter 28, it's the day before the great battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. Chapter 28, we see the night before the battle, Saul goes to the witch or the medium of Endor. He brings up Samuel um, somehow in God's providence. Uh, Saul is able to talk to Samuel who says, tomorrow you will die. And then in chapter 29, we rewind just a few days, and we see what happened before this night. Uh, The days before this, when the Philistines are mustering their armies, and they're gathering together, and they're about to travel to this area where the battle will be fought. Uh, So why is the author doing this? What's the theme that he wants to, to show us? Well, what he's doing is he's showing us the contrast between Saul, who hates God, and David, who loves God. Saul, who makes bad decisions, and God judges him for those decisions. And David, who makes bad decisions, and God rescues him from his bad decisions. We see the heart of Saul that is opposed to everything godly, and the heart of David, who makes mistakes but trusts God with all of his heart and soul. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 29. I'll read the whole chapter, so please remain seated. It's a longer passage, but hear God's holy word for you tonight. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place where you have assigned him. He shall not go down into battle with us, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men that are here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me until this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, 
that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless as in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us into battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning and returned to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This is a a wonderful example of God's providence, God's care for his people, even in spite of their mistakes. I was trying to think, I mean, we all have these kinds of stories, these kinds of histories in our own lives. If, if you're in faith, you can look back in your life and you can see some, some tragic mistake that you've made and actually see how God worked it all out for his glory and to bring you to the place you're at right now. I was trying to think of the worst one in my life. I was a fairly impetuous teenager. I was smart and prideful and thought I could do anything. I jumped around in probably my first two or three years after high school, I went to three different schools, three different colleges. Uh, I didn't care. I thought if I made good grades, it's nobody's business, shut up and leave me alone. Uh, eventually, I landed at the Air Force Academy, which is a, a very prestigious school, very difficult to get in. Each year, there's something like 30,000 applicants, and they only take 1,500. It was one of those years I was selected. I already had two years of college behind me, but I thought, why not? I'm just going to the Air Force Academy. No big deal. After a half a semester, I thought, what am I doing here? I don't want to be here. I want to go home and get married. So I kind of maneuvered and Worked every angle possible, calling my old ROTC commander, calling all my school officials, telling them, hey, I'm at the academy, I've got good grades, I want to come back. It was a giant mess. But I left. I said, I don't care what anyone thinks. I don't care what my future wife thinks. I don't care what my parents think. I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going home. So I left and went back to the University of Texas, San Antonio, and finished my school there. So my, my decisions were so poor and so bad that I really despaired of life for a month or two. I thought, what an idiot. It was at that moment that God began to, to break uh, the self-sufficiency and pride in my own heart. So looking back on the event, there's pain, but there's also great joy. Because were it not for that failure... I wouldn't be right here today, I'm sure. And in God's providence, leaving the Air Force Academy put me one year behind. And that one year behind set me up for real success in ROTC and in pilot training and 
the aircraft of my choice, all of my assignments were affected by that one-year delay in ways that I could not imagine. So even in that, God just showered his love upon me, and he said, yes, you did make a big mess. Yes, you are an idiot. Yes, but I will help you through this, and I'll help you and show you the way that you should go. So maybe you don't have quite as big a mess of a story in your life to think of. Um, But David finds himself in at least as big a mess as I described to you. Uh, And yet David had faith in God. And looking at this story, it reminds me of um, a story I heard this morning. Actually, Patty told me Uh, there was a, a young boy. He was in school and he was telling his teacher uh, how wonderful it was that the Israelites had crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. And the teacher said, no, 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 no. Don't you understand where they crossed? It actually was part of a reef, and they walked through six inches of water. So it wasn't really that big of a miracle. And the boy said, but don't you see what a great miracle it was then that the whole Egyptian army was drowned in six inches of water? The reality is that God is sovereign over all things and his word is perfectly true and we can trust him. And he's sovereign even over our mistakes. He's a most holy, wise, and powerful God. And he's preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And his providence is often surprising. So we're going to see God's surprising providence in this particular uh, message And I'm just going to go through the text and then give you a few points of application at the end. If you look at verse 1, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So what's happening if Israel is is akin to kind of a north-south running area with the sea on the one side, the the, uh, Mediterranean Sea on the one side, you have basically the Gaza Strip on the eastern coast, and on this coast, on the western coast, yeah, the western coast, and on this coast is where all the Philistines live. And what they've done is they've gone all north, and they're basically going to invade Israel to the center of Israel. So what you have is the the Philistines going as far north in their territory as they feel safe to muster their armies. And we see Saul, who sees what's happening, and he's trying to put himself between the Philistines and the king's highway, basically which is his trade route he's trying to protect. Also, he sees that the Philistines could be splitting his territory, the the land of Israel, in two. And he has a duty to protect his people, so he's trying to get in between them. Here we see that uh, as they... And where are the Philistines exactly? I was kind of matching up the map today with the map then. And they're somewhere around Tel Aviv, if you know anything about modern um, geography in Israel. They're on the coast, uh, the northern extremity of Gaza. So Gath and Eshkelon and Ashdod and Ekron and all the great cities of the Philistines are all bringing their armies. They're mustering their armies. They're passing by hundreds and thousands, the text says. It's a pass in review is the military terminology for it. Uh, it's always been a part of the military, a pass and review. The whole point of a pass and review, 
uh, isn't what it is today. Today, it's just a formal ceremony where the general stands and sees how good people can march. Like, that's not why we have pastor reviews throughout Scripture and throughout history. What it really was was for the general to see all of his army, and he looks at every one, and he goes, okay, that unit looks sharp. Those guys are ready. This unit, eh, we'll keep them in the back. That's the idea of a passing review. It's necessary prelim- uh, before battle uh, for the general to just know what he's got to fight with to assign roles and missions and order of attack based on the strength of the troops presented to him. So during the pass and review, what do we find? Well, the, the generals are watching all the troops march by, and they see Hebrews. Wait, we're going to fight Hebrews. What are these Hebrews doing here? There's a little bit of humor in this chapter, I think purposely. David and his 600 men were in the formation, were in the review with Achish. So actually, the generals are the smart ones in this chapter, really, throughout we see uh, silliness from Achish and deceit from David. But the Philistine commanders know exactly what's happening. They know exactly what they're doing. The whole reason for a pass and review is just what they did to see if there's anything that could be a threat in their line of battle. And they saw the Hebrews and they exclaimed, what are these Hebrews doing here? We can see this as the reader. Like we read this and we know. They're right. What are the Hebrews doing there? The Philistines have been mortal enemies of the Hebrews from the beginning. So you can imagine their attitude. It's like making a bed for a fox in your hen house. Why would you do it? It's unthinkable. It's nonsense. They were not happy to see David or his men. And Achish tries to defend him. You remember David is Achish's bodyguard for life. This is a probably a high-ranking official in Achish's court. He's probably a general, probably a general at least over his 600 men. But Achish says to them, this is David, and he's been with me for years, and I've found no fault in him to this day. He says, David has been faithful to me. So the irony, of course, as a reader, is that David hasn't been faithful to Achish, He's been telling him he's attacking Israel, but he's been going out and attacking all of Israel's enemies and lying to Achish the entire time. There's certainly fault to be found. David, however, the the general saw it clearly. David was not trustworthy from a Philistine perspective at all. So the reader knows the generals are right to question David's motives. And Achish is wrong to trust David. So I think we continue to read the narrative with a certain amount of um, delight because we see what's happening in the narrative. We see uh, the rightness of the generals and the foolishness of Achish. But the commanders of the Philistines, it says, were angry with him in verse 4. They're having none of it. They are not going to put up with this. They said, send the man back. Send him back. He will not go down with us. And they give three reasons. They said, first, he could become an adversary to us, only in our rear. Can you imagine what a horrible thing that would be to be fighting the Israelite army and then have Israelites behind you also turning on you to fight as well? This is not what they want to do. It's not a risk worth taking. No matter how faithful David 
has been to you, or you think David has been to you, he is not a Philistine ally. This is the guy who killed Goliath, remember? They also bring up another point. What better way would David gain the good graces of his master, of his Lord, of Saul, than to turn against us in the heat of battle and take our heads off instead of the enemy? And finally, he is famous. He's famous all over the land, and he's famous for killing Philistines. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. No, they said, this is asinine. We will not permit David to join the battle. Send him home. And as the readers, we know he's correct. The generals are correct. They got it. They nailed it. David's not going to fight his own people. We know that. But they don't know that. Or at least Achish doesn't know that. So they send him back. Or they tell Achish to send him back. So in verse 6, we see Achish talking to David now. Again, a little bit of humor is involved here. Achish tells David, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. Do you realize in this whole chapter, Achish is the only one who mentions the name of Yahweh? He's the only one who mentions the name of God. Why is that, do you think? Well, many believe, and I agree, that the reason that is is to show that even when we are obtuse and not seeking after God, maybe David did seek after God, but it's not in the text, that God is still Yahweh. He's still the king. He still rules over all. And even the pagan princes of the world inadvertently often acknowledge God and His providence. Have you ever heard someone who you know doesn't serve God say, well, everything happens for a reason. Well, that's true, but you don't know why. Everything does happen for a reason. And it's because of the Almighty God, the Creator of the universe. Achish says, as surely as the Lord lives, you have been honest, and it seems right that you should march out and in with me. As surely as Yahweh lives, you have been honest. Achish couldn't be more wrong. David hasn't been honest with Achish at all. So we laugh when we read these words. Achish thinks he's right, that David has been honest, but he's been everything but honest. He's been attacking all of the enemies of Israel. David has and then been telling Achish that he's been attacking the Israelites. So David is thought to be very trustworthy, and we know that David is not someone that Achish should trust at all. He says he hasn't found anything wrong with David's conduct. But the Philistine lords and the nobles and the generals of the army, they absolutely disagree and for right reason. Well, I think one point of application we can make before I move on is we often, when we are just uh, not this church in particular, but the church in America, when we accept just everyone and everything as acceptable and okay, when we don't hold to God's standard with some, uh, with some false notion of being more loving or more accepting or more, more kind, well, we'll, just, we'll accept anything as long as you tell me that 
that you love Jesus, it's all okay. I don't care how you live. I don't care what you do. Are we not also putting David in behind the army? Are we not also bringing the enemy behind us? If we are like the Philistine generals, aren't we, aren't we aligning ourselves with the enemy who will turn us or turn on us when we're unequally yoked with the culture or the gods of this culture or the unbelievers? We have one standard, and when we do our pass and review, when we look at the Scriptures, we have to call sin, sin. We have to lovingly correct We have to challenge those who are not living up to the standard of Scripture. And of course, there's there's so many churches that are changing their views on important cultural issues. And it's just so obvious to many in the church that these things are not helpful. What is marriage? Is it between a man and a woman? Or is it just between a man and whoever else he wants to be with? Well, it's really just, these people are just seeking after love and happiness. Just don't worry. We'll get them in the church. We'll make them members. And then we'll let the gospel change their hearts. Who are we to decide what's right and wrong? We're bringing the enemy right in behind us when we do these kinds of things. And it's not going to end up well. They're going to turn on us and they're going to take our heads We are the church militant. We're not just fighting doctrinal issues. We're actually fighting a spiritual battle. We fight not with swords and spears and political rallies and votes. We fight on our knees. We're serving the living God. And we need to adhere to the standards of the living God even if they're opposed by the culture, even if our culture hates what we're saying. Marriage is between a man and a woman, period, or it's not a marriage. Anything else is sinful. Our culture hates to hear that word. And so many other things. So let's have the courage to stand on the Word of God and not let the enemy into our rear. So now, looking at verse 7, Achish says to David, Go back, and go back peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. He doesn't want David to make a scene. He just says, Go back to Ziklag. The generals need to know that their rear is secure. They need to know that no one's going to come upon them. We have to have a cohesive army. We have to be able to fight as one. That means you cannot be here, David. Go. And he wants David to go in the morning as early as he can without making a scene. And verse 8 is, is interesting. David says to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? David feigns surprise. He's like, really? What did I do? What an injustice this is. I told you I would go and fight and you would see what I could do. And now you tell me I can't go and fight? So again, this is, I think, meant to be a little bit humorous because we know as readers that David would never take up sword against Hebrews. We know this. His character is not the character of Saul. So the irony continues. And David's word choice next is, I think, wonderful. He says, 
that I might go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King? So what Achish hears and what David says and what David maybe means are not the same thing at all. He knows what Achish is going to hear with these words. You are my Lord, the King. I want to go fight the enemies of my Lord, the King. But who is David's king? Well, we just need to look in his writings and we see in Psalm 10, he says, The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from his hand. In Psalm 24, David said, Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. In Psalm 110, David said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at your right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So knowing who David's king really is, really informs what David is saying to Achish here. And it's actually quite funny. He's saying, why can't I go fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? His lord and king is God. And the enemies of his lord and king are Achish and the Philistines. So these statements are, in a sense, gratifying although he certainly seems to need or want to pretend to be disappointed to maintain the ruse. And so he does. Remember, all the families of all these soldiers are at Ziklag. I think he's probably still trying to protect them by acting surprised that he can't go and fight. Finally, in verse 9 and 10, Achish answered David and said, I know that you're as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, you have to go. David is as blameless in the sight of Achish as an angel of God. So certainly David is blameless before the Lord because of Christ and his blood. But before Achish, again, the irony continues. David is not blameless before Achish. Indeed, probably would have been killed by David if he had gone into battle. Speculating, of course, we don't know what David's plan was. But Saul was terrified of Israel's armies being defeated by the Philistines. And here we see that David is terrified of having to go fight Israel's armies with the Philistines. Saul seeks God and then demonic forces for deliverance from his enemies, the Philistines. And David doesn't seem to seek God in the text anyway, but is delivered by his enemies from having to fight God's people. What a strange turn of God's providence. And yet, God's providence often is steady, strange, and surprising when we look at it in the moment. David probably thought there was absolutely no way out of this situation. What a mess he had made. Maybe he trusted in God to give him the wisdom he needed at the moment in the battle. Whatever he thought, it wasn't a good situation to be in. And yet... Even in the midst of all of the mess, God still shows his power and his might to deliver. He used the enemies of God to deliver his man. He used the Philistines themselves to deliver his people. And even when you think that you don't know where the answer came from, ultimately the answer came from God. Dr. Davis, uh, one of the commentaries that I uh, studied for this, he shares a story that I thought was was really good. 
there was a woman, she was very poor, and she was praying for food. This was uh, in the early 1900s, I believe, praying for food, praying loudly that God would meet her needs, help her feed her children. She had no food in the pantry. Her neighbor was an atheist, and as she's praying loudly that God would give her food, he hears the prayer, and he thinks to himself, I'm going to play with this lady. So he goes to the grocery store, and he buys some bread, and he buys some food, and he puts it on her front step. And sure enough, she opens the door, and there's the food, and she praises God. She says, thank you, Lord. You provided this food for me. Thank you for providing for me. You are a wonderful God. And then he steps out from behind the bush and he says, no, actually, woman, I'm the one who gave you this food. Don't you understand? There's no God. I'm the one who did this. And she said, no, you are wrong, sir. God did meet my needs. He did give me food. He just used the devil to do it. (laughs) Often this is God's providence in our lives. We will never know. Probably all that he does in our lives to preserve and protect us. Do you realize he cares for you differently than he does someone who's not his child? Certainly he's never cruel. He's, he's never uh, spiteful. But he does care for his own children. Or Psalm 23 means nothing. Isaiah 40 means nothing. He cares for his sheep. He gently leads those who have young and holds them close to his bosom. He cares for those who are his. We see David is probably relieved and surprised that God had delivered him. But then in retrospect, as we see these situations as well, in retrospect, he's probably not surprised at all. This is his God. This is what God does. Our God cares for us. We see God's providence spliced all throughout Psalm 27. Hear these words that David wrote. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh and my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp around me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices and shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, cast me not off and forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but you, O Lord, will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I will look upon the the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. 
So David speaks of all the troubles that he's facing in this moment. His enemies are around him. His longing to be with God. He's feeling like God may have forsaken him and may have cast him away. But he says, no, I will still hope in God. And then he finishes by saying, wait for the Lord. Wait for what? Wait for the Lord. God has the situation in your life, the thing that's in your mind, right in hand. He's perfectly on top of every detail. Wait for the Lord and be strong and let your heart take courage. David waited upon the Lord and the Lord God answered him, even though he was the one who made the mess. Who knows what other options he had, but he waited for the Lord and God worked his deliverance. We can take comfort in all of God's providence for us as well. When you feel like you've made the worst mess of a situation, the worst mess of a relationship, Lord, this is never going to change. I've said the wrong things. I've done the wrong things. I've absolutely ruined this part of my life. There's no hopeless situation with our God. There's no opportunity for him ever to be defeated. He will always have victory and victory for his children. He will use whatever means he desires, even surprising ones, to deliver his people. Remember Psalm 23 says, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This happened for David. Only in David's case, his enemies actually prepared the table for him. God used them. So when you look back at your life, or even in the the midst of situations you are facing right now, You see your enemies, you see persecutors, you see people assaulting you. Remember that God and His providence is not letting anything to chance. There's nothing that's happening that He's confused about. There's nothing that's happening that He's wondering why this has happened. From the bird that falls to the ground, to the sun that rises in the morning, to His own Son who came and was persecuted and died according to God's perfect will. He will use everything for your good, even difficult things in life. Trust Him, wait for the Lord, for He's good. Call out to your God today. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You and we give You all praise and glory and honor. We pray that You would turn our hearts increasingly to You, that we would never lose hope or despair. We would never think that there's a situation that's too big for You or too much of a mess that You can't, you can't arrange it well. Lord, all of your providence is as like a a tapestry that you are weaving in, in perfection over the course of many thousands of years so that the, the thread of our life is just one tiny bit of the giant wonder of the majesty of your history, of your people, of your redemption. So Lord, give us courage, give us faith, Give us hope in Jesus. Give us the same hope that David had, that he would see his his Redeemer in the land of the living and inspire our hearts to live for you. Lord, for those who are here and really are hurting, who really are in a mess, who really are facing difficult situations and suffering with great anxiety, we pray that we would take heed to our Lord's words. 
and that we would not be anxious, but turn our hearts to you in prayer. We would not worry about tomorrow, but we would trust your good providence. And remember that you're a good shepherd who loves your sheep. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.